Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. Hello, this is Diane Estabrook, staff writer for McKnight's Home Care Daily Pulse. 30 years ago, it's the economy, stupid, was the catchphrase in the 1992 presidential election. Well, guess what? That's the catchphrase today in 2022. Are we headed for a recession? And what could that mean for health care? I recently spoke with Kristen Pothier, Global Healthcare and Life Sciences Deal Advisory and Strategy Leader at KPMG about how providers should prepare for a potential downturn. I started our conversation asking about a recent poll KPMG took, asking industry leaders if they think a recession is imminent. About 77% of them believe that there's greater than 50% chance of a recession in the next 12 months. And in fact, we're, of course, seeing it. We're looking at it as our investors take a little bit of additional extra time before they look for new acquisitions. As they think of their acquisitions that they might be going into, they're taking extra time and diligence right now. They're pulling back. They're looking at portfolio rationalization a lot sooner these days, and they're spending more time in portfolio rationalization than they are in searching for new targets. And finally, as we look at it just in general, they're really looking to see how they can cut costs and get ready for what they believe is a recession. So either we will have this recession and they will be more ready for it, or we'll have a very nice surprise when we don't have the the recession that we're all anticipating. You mentioned M&A activity, and it it seems counterintuitive because it seems like right now there could be buying opportunities out there in this kind of market. If there are people that are wanting to get out of the business and this might be a good time for them to make acquisitions and maybe do it at a discount. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, And, you know, COVID in general had a very strong impact on the healthcare and life sciences segments of the market. For any life sciences company that was creating vaccines, creating diagnostics, creating therapeutics, um, the COVID cash that was um, brought into their systems really helped them and helped them acquire over the last two years. And we're still seeing that cash as, you know, even though COVID is lagging some now, um, we're still seeing diagnostics testing having to happen. We're still seeing people getting sick. So they're still um, enjoying some of that revenue, but then also putting it to really good use in terms of their acquisitions. That said, they bought a lot in the last two years. And so that, again, that rationalization is really what we're seeing today. If you look at it from a healthcare perspective, our healthcare systems, though, are looking at all of the patients that they, you know, have to bring back into their elective surgeries, all of the stress that they've had on their system in general, and they're saying, well, I'm not going to do that much more M&A. I'm going to really buckle up and make sure that uh, my profitability is sound. Yeah, you talked about healthcare providers and, you know, our audience is home care and home health care and hospice. And obviously, a lot of care is moving into the home. We're seeing that with hospital at home. There's a big push into the home. Um, from that perspective, though, and there have been a lot of acquisitions on that end. What about that audience? What do you foresee if things do tighten up? What do you see going on with M&A activity in that arena? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And I think that in that particular part of healthcare, it has enjoyed the rise in acquisitions and the thoughtful diligence that goes along with bringing in any one of those those types of businesses. Um, I would say that 
home care is here to stay. Uh, when we look at the evolution in the United States anyway, of where home care is, where hospice is, um, it there is COVID aside, you know, COVID sort of forced us into more of people staying at home, being able to stay at home, needing care in their homes um, and having to stay put. It allowed us to create ecosystems and overall um, processes that allowed all of our seniors to be able to stay or, or our, our chronically ill people to be able to stay in the house. Um, and we also upped our technology and our point of care based diagnostics, for example, to be able to to even make it easier to be in the home. And so what we're seeing is, you know, many of our investors are still looking at this from a perspective of even though now we can all walk around and, you know, even if we're masked up, we feel good. That is something that though people are getting excited about just being able to be at home and be cared for in the home in a different way than it was before. Yeah, you mentioned about technology, and we've seen um, a lot of telehealth and remote patient monitoring. Um, do you think that the government, if CMS is going to extend, you know, there's some legislation that would extend telehealth flexibility until 2024, do you, th- you see that legislation getting passed or even beyond that? Do you see that we're going to be seeing down the road, even further, an expansion of telehealth capability and and that kind of um, virtual care in the home? Yeah, it's virtual care in certain areas like mental health, for example, has really opened up our ability to care for patients in very different ways. And so when you think of, for example, you know, the teenager that sits uh, next to the parent and and you want to have a, a, a session with them, but just getting them into a mental health facility to have that discussion, it's a lot easier if it's virtually. And it's a lot easier to get those touch points um, and working through that in a, in a very different way in mental health. And that's really opened our eyes to how we can best treat patients in, an, in a number of different settings. I think that also when you think about some of the much easier to diagnose and much easier to treat ailments rather than bringing all of those people into an office and get more people sick to be able to diagnose at home just makes good sense from a medical perspective. And so I don't foresee uh, telehealth decreasing. I foresee that it will increase and continue to increase as people, more and more people get used to it and more and more people really embrace. And by people, I mean our whole medical ecosystem. I mean our payers, I mean our patients, and I mean our providers. I think the one area that is important to understand about telehealth, though, is you still need a computer. You still need um, infrastructure to be able to um, use telehealth. And that isn't the case in many of our underserved populations and underprivileged populations. And so that is a, a next frontier for all of us in this market is to be able to disseminate the technology and to make sure that all populations have ability to access that care. Let's get back to the issue of um, the economy, because that kind of is the big elephant in the room right now. Um, Is healthcare, and it would seem that it is one of those industries that is recession proof. People are always going to get sick. Seniors are going to need care in their home. But is it recession proof? 
Yeah, um, not every place. It, 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 every every part of healthcare and life sciences is it. It depends, right? So when you look at certain areas of the healthcare ecosystem, when you think of elective surgery, cosmetic surgery, patients that are you know they they're getting help for their chronic care and they're feeling pretty good. And in a regular system, when there's plenty of money in that system they keep on going for care and everybody can afford everything. And then things drop out, right? The first thing to go when there's a recession usually is, you know, your cosmetic surgeries go, go straight down. Also, you know, a lot of your elective surgeries, anybody that has to pay out of pocket in any particular way for whatever it is they're doing for care typically tends to go down. And so when you're thinking about patients in general, there usually is that concern within a recession that our patients aren't receiving the best care because honestly, they still can't afford it. When you look at it from a perspective of the companies that fuel the healthcare industry, that is, you know, our pharmaceutical companies, our diagnostic companies, our device companies, especially in pharmaceuticals and diagnostics, it does tend to be more recession proof just because of what you mentioned at the beginning. People are always getting sick. We have more and more chronic sickness that's happening across our senior population is getting even more senior, having more issues, et cetera, et cetera. But along that line, you talked about delaying elective surgery. So if you don't get, you know, your knee replaced or whatever, you might not be getting that in home therapy. Yes. Um, and and if you need personal care in the home, you might be potentially relying on a family member instead of paying out of pocket for it. Yeah, it's a it's a web, isn't it? When you think about the healthcare ecosystem, every single time a decision is made to postpone care or transition care to another center, um, you have lost a follow up. You have inappropriate care. You have care that isn't sufficient enough, which then usually leads to more stress on the system as a sicker patient comes back into the system. So for example, uncontrolled diabetes or um, a hip replacement that doesn't necessarily take um, or, you know, um, in any one of, you know, OBGYN care is a perfect example of when a woman comes to the emergency room in full labor, well, what, where did this woman come from? Why didn't she have prenatal care? What, what is going on with her baby? All of those things stress the system in very different ways, especially in a recession environment where, people are not going and, and aren't as comfortable or can't afford to go for um, their well health checks. The last several months, healthcare providers, um, including home care and hospice, have really been seeing their costs spiraling out of control. Yes. You know, everything from labor to transportation. How do these companies control, control their costs and then still preserve the bottom line and maybe even make money in this environment? Yeah, absolutely. And um, this is something that we do a lot of work on with our clients, of course. And so the first thing that we really work on and what they have to work on is their margin improvement programs and their cost cutting, if you will. Nobody love, never likes to talk about cost cutting, but there usually is a lot when you actually look at every single line item, there are places to sharpen the pencil. When you think about preferred supplier contracts, for example, renegotiating those preferred supplier contracts so that you get a little bit more out of what you're doing. Outsourcing non-core activities to lower cost providers, um, billing, patient communications. We have seen some really nice success where 
rather than having the drag on it in your own organization, you outsource it to much lower cost providers, wherever they happen to be. And that allows you a little bit more of that give. The third thing I would say is um, technology. So again, when we go back to telehealth or, or those types of things, that's one thing, but we see it in laboratory medicine all the time, total automation. So when you think about your labs and you think about the inability to get med techs in, they're expensive, they're rare, and they're um, right now in laboratory, there's a lot of retirements. And so people are not coming back into the lab. If you have a totally automated lab, it's a one-time cost, sure, of course, but then your lab automates beautifully. Another place to really push on this is point-of-care diagnostics. And so what that means is rather than everybody filtering into a hospital and stressing that system, they can get their point-of-care kits for whatever infectious disease that they're looking dealing with or, or, or COVID testing or whatever – and it happens to be outside of the major health systems. And then finally, just um, working capital improvement initiatives. Usually we see you know, a number of those different types of dynamics that can work with you as well. In your report, you talk about getting ahead of costs, and you may have just outlined some of this, but you talk about developing an action plan. And how do you go about that? Is that basically the steps that you just went through, or is that something separate? Yeah, it is. Some of it's, you know, I I went a little bit to solutioning to answer your question. The first thing you need to do is take a big step back. You need to look at the addressable cost baseline, right? So all of your costs, line them up, the labor costs, indirect and direct procurement costs, whatever it happens to be, that whole thing has to be looked at. Then we usually using our best demonstrated practices of, of, of looking at these for many, many years all over the place is to say, where are those cost opportunities? Mark them down, develop that set of hypotheses for where they work through, and then overlay some of the solutions. How can technology be a lever? How does everything tie back to the income statement and the P&L and, and working with your business unit leaders to really understand the potential savings? Or if you see an area of savings and you're a little bit worried that you might it might be just too little or too big talking with those business unit leaders about the impact of their business should you reduce those costs. And then that way, that allows you to prioritize each one of those potential cost savings over time and really create a program with both the near-term wins to move the needle in the short term and really fund those next-term initiatives. You talked about addressing some of these things with um, unit leaders, but how do you or should you prepare the rest of your staff if you see a recession coming? The the rank and file people, the boots on the ground kind of people. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is, and it is one that, especially in healthcare and life sciences, is a problem because you know, for example, some um, people got very burnt out during COVID and haven't come back into the system. So we were already, especially in nursing, we were in staffing shortages already before COVID. And then now we're even in more of a, of a need for nurses, for example, and many ancillary staff to help out, especially with home care, hospice, et cetera, as we go through. There's a couple of different things. There's preparing the staff, and then there's also preparing the leaders for 
if your staff doesn't come back or has a bad reaction, what do you do? How do you fill those seats? And so to the latter point, um, one of the things that we're seeing a lot is both cross-training employees to support multiple areas. Number one, you pay them more, but they're cross-trained on a number of different areas so that there is ability to flex your workforce depending on what's going on. Um, the second thing is being open to the idea that there are a number of different ways to do a job. And sometimes um, nurses, for example, get put into a position where they are doing five jobs in one. And in fact, some of those jobs could be done by lower cost and, and honestly, less trained employees less trained than nursing staff, of course, but can be done beautifully and for your patients. So the question then becomes, how do you take a workforce and bifurcate that workforce and really think about that workforce in a very different way and train up people that might not necessarily have all of the original degrees that you might want in that particular position, but are really well equipped to take care of the patients of the future. These sound like things that might be visible if you're cross-training and you're having, um, you know, employees doing multiple staff. These things sound like things that could be transparent to your clients. Do you prepare your clients for a recession or are there things that you can do to actually retain them through the recession? Yes. Great point. So we do both. So if you look at it from a perspective of how do you retain your staff in, you know, so right now, as we're looking at this and we're thinking about it, the first is to really understand, you know, you can renegotiate role. You can look at this from a perspective of if you have to reduce your workforce, how do you reduce that workforce in a way that makes sense and doesn't hurt your patients, of course, but also makes makes sense for the workforce that you need in general. And then for all of your employees, as you're thinking about this, really being very transparent and detailed into what is to come and a short, again, a short, mid and long term plan for all of them and being able to sit with them and say, look, this is what we're seeing today. This is something that you might or might not want to be be a part of as we move forward. How do you feel about that? Come help with some solutions and really be, make them part of the solution to be able to help them forward. All really great points. Kristen Pothier, KPMG, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com.